I'm Kara Oakley. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of Watershed Lit. We're celebrating 23 years of the Fall for the Book Festival by sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to visit fallforthebook.org to find out more about our virtual festival. Today, we're going to be hearing from M.M. Bailey and Yirmiyahu Aaron Taub, two contributors from the anthology This is What America Looks Like, Poetry and Fiction from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To get our discussion going, co-editor of the anthology Caroline Bach is here to chat with us about it. Hi, Caroline. Hello, Susie and Kara. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for being here. We're looking forward to talking with you. I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about This is What America Looks Like and why Washington Writers Publishing House thought it was important to put this collection together during the pandemic? This is What America Looks Like came about because I had this idea that the Washington Writers Publishing House should do another anthology. The last one was 25 years ago. And I suggested it right before the world changed. I suggested it in fall of 2019. And by the beginning of 2020, we were underway with it. And of course, in March, the pandemic hit. So we had open submissions and we were hoping for writers across the DMV to contribute their poetry and fiction around social justice themes. And what happened was we got many, many poems and stories on those themes, but we also started to be flooded with uh, stories and poems about the pandemic and living with COVID around us. So the anthology, which was thought of as a book with 50 writers became 100 writers. Uh, We thought we needed to expand it because of the volume of material that we received and the quality of the material that we received. I felt the whole world was home writing and submitting to us. I actually want to ask you a little bit more about, you know, this sentiment that everybody was just home writing and and submitting. And of course, so many writers were doing that. So that kind of leads me into the title of this anthology. This is what America looks like, which is fantastic. But it's also curious since, as you said, the writers are just based here in the the DMV. So I I would love if you talk a little bit about how you and, and Jonah Colson, the other editor, feel like writers from this region really are representative of the larger country. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. The title came initially from the women's marches, where there was a chant, what does America look like? This is what America looks like, meaning diverse, inclusive, loud, and passionate. And I think that my experience at writers from the DMV is that because of the diversity, you get the whole spectrum of America, the way we hope America can be the dream of America to some extent. I also think that you get a really fascinating intersection of race and politics and history in the DMV. And that's really unique to this region. It's It lends itself to writing that is very deeply personal in one hand, but on the other hand, that reflects the major currents of America. Thank you, Caroline. And now let's hear from two of the writers. 
Today, we're talking with Yermiyahu, Aaron Taub, and M.M. Bailey. To kick things off, we're going to ask them to read their pieces. First up, Yermiyahu. Yermiyahu Aaron Taub is a poet and writer in English and Yiddish and a Yiddish translator. He is the author of two books of fiction and six volumes of poetry. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here and um, happy to read my poem. Well, maybe happy is not quite the right word, but intrigued. <laughs> we can talk about that. Okay, the poem is called The Light at the Beginning of the Tunnel. I walk down the corridor past a closed door. Light leaks out from beneath. I speculate about the activities of the person behind it. Is he listening to music on headphones? Perhaps Vivaldi, perhaps heavy metal. Is he watching television on mute? The colors from the scene illuminating his night face. The images dancing over his indifference to or unawareness of my presence. Perhaps he's reading The New Yorker or an underground comic. I follow footsteps with trepidation. The movement of, let's call him the man from the bar. Why am I here? Why did I get into the car? Why tonight? How did my inexperience become unbearable, repugnant even? Why didn't I give him my number and meet him for a cappuccino and biscotti at another time in another place? Why did I follow him from that watering hole in the wall? These questions swarm around me, unanswered, unanswerable. And still I move forward, following him to the threshold of the sham Eden at Carter's end. The man from the bar is now above me. How fine he is, refined even, chiseled in a glow so delicate, he insists it must not be obscured. The invasion begins without an opening volley. I beseech my white flag frantically aflutter. My cries ricochet off his resolve. He tells me to shut up, stop struggling. I obey, float above myself in the nether region between witness and onlooker. If I don't, he proceeds methodically, relentlessly, until suddenly, finally, it's over. Or is it? In the morning, he returns me to my basement without banter, deposits me on my doorstep. Now he knows where I live. I wonder again about his housemate. Did he hear? Surely this was not the first time pleading prospered in that room. Perhaps I should be fortunate he didn't partake. At least that. The low ground, I dab in vain at the blood, my virginal secretion, and entomb myself under covers for days, under shrouds for decades. Next is M.M. Bailey. M.M. Bailey lives in Alexandria, Virginia, and received her MFA from George Mason University. Her work can be found in the anthologies This is What America Looks Like and Furious Gravity. All right. That was such a powerful piece. Thanks for reading that. Smaller. I coughed in her face, and then she died. I was carrying my wool coat, a small bag, and the virus. We were both underground, surrounded by the sound of metal on metal, and ambushed by a blast of moist air from the passing train when I'd lost control. 
something that happened occasionally, not often enough to make a change, but not rarely either. Sure, I'd ruined a relationship or two over the years, more than two, but each time I was probably better for it. Dan had always been a pussy, Mary was a tease, Tina had always been crazy. I coughed in her face and then she died. Never before had the consequences of my impulses been this grave, this burden, this heavy. I lost control and then she died. I'd killed her, I suppose. Barely spoken to her, never asked her name, but I'd killed her. Maybe she deserved it. I'd tried to be polite at the start, asked kindly to purchase a ticket, but her thick accent barked at me, wanted me to use the nearby machine instead, careless, lazy. So I lost control, coughed in her face, and three weeks later, she died. Her picture on the news, our story in print, a murder with no blood to wash clean, no body to dispose of, no last breath to witness. And though I can picture blackish brown irises flecked with olive green, our eyes may have never met. Dare I say I was lucky? I'd lost control and then she died, but my hands had never touched her skin. There'd been no fingers around her neck, no blade in my grip, no trigger. If I'm being honest, and that's something I admittedly often wish to avoid, I wasn't even that angry. I wasn't blinded by rage, drunk with power, delirious from a new sick, or in any other such state that might offer absolution. The truth is, and I think you are more like me than you care to admit, she made me feel small, and I knew I could make her feel smaller. So I did. I took control, and then she died. Thank you both so much for those readings. So we wanted to start off by asking each of you to talk about the spark behind your piece. So, Em, why don't we start with you? Sure, yeah. So quite obviously, um, it was the global pandemic that sort of um, was on my mind at the time that I started writing this. It's a somewhat strange story, a lot more aggressive than anything I've sort of ever written before, but a few months Uh, into the spread, I think we were just starting the quarantine period, I found myself just reading countless news stories, different individuals reactively trying to infect others deliberately. And that really struck me. I became pretty fixated on it. It was a kind of deliberate yet casual cruelty that haunted me. And this story came out of that And I just started to think about what America looks like when those with power refuse to accept it or to respect it. And this anthology came at a perfect time. I think anthologies like this one can help us rediscover, you know, who we want to become as a collective. And so, yeah, it was really just a product of our our very difficult time. I love that. I don't love it, but I love this idea of (laughs) deliberate deliberate but casual cruelty it's such a it's such a strong image and and Yermiyahu that makes me think of your piece as well for for this the other character not our speaker it's very deliberate but it also feels very casual for them can you talk a little bit about the spark behind your piece um yes absolutely I also just wanted to comment um on M's that sentence I think you are more like me than you care to admit um that struck me as really powerful that you know, for all those readers that, you know, might want to distance themselves from the speaker, they're looped, they're looped in necessarily. 
found that jarring and unsettling in a, in a really interesting way. So for me, it was instead of a spark, I would say uh, it's one of those, you know, dull decades old aches um, that kind of demand to be written slash thought about after, yeah, years and years of not wanting to do either uh, write or think about it. And then after, you know, beginning to actually start talking about it, um, this and another poem came forth. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about 30 years later. And so sometimes it just takes that long to kind of move into language, to move out of the inchoate swirl volcano vortex of emotional devastation that kind of lurks and swirls within and around and above. I wanted to do something that was kind of plain spoken and clear-ish. And so, yeah, that that's kind of what arose as a result. Both of you kind of had me thinking about the, the way you write about power in, in both of these pieces. And in your case, you've got this narrator who admits to essentially losing control in a moment, but ultimately that moment does hold a lot of power for her because she, because it obviously has such a large effect. Can you talk about the contrast of that that one very seemingly small moment that actually holds a lot of power? Uh, that's such a good question. And I'll just, you know, mutual admiration society. I have to say, uh, when I first read your piece, Yermiyahu, entomb myself under covers for days, under shrouds for decades. That sat with me for for weeks after I read that. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think it ties into power, the power that we have that all of us, you know, those of us even who are well-intentioned, the power that we have and that we use, whether carelessly or intentionally has impact, great impact, some of that impact we don't see. And I think it's interesting because in my flash fiction piece, I do think the narrator loses control. But I think the contrast between a moment where you lose control, where you lose control and the moments that we ignore the fact that we impacted someone in a very small way, whether that's in a six degrees of separation way, all of us here, unfortunately, right, living in during a global pandemic, you don't know who you encounter that then encounters a million other people, right, through their encounters. And I think it's such an interesting time because it is an opportunity for us to begin to respect that power and to understand how much power we all really do have in those small moments. That's easy to kind of ignore, but it's also a time, you know, where we, we I think, have a greater responsibility to respect that power as well. I'll just quickly say too, because Judith Butler is such a hero of mine, I had just finished reading Global Violence and Sexual Politics uh, before starting this story. And in that great essay that she writes, she talks about the enormously powerful prerogative within the social world that we all have to decide what power is and what truth should have power. And I think that also is really interesting as we kind of look upon the world that we're currently living in moving forward. You know, the power 
that we all have, not only to acknowledge truth, but to decide which truths are more important, I think uh, is just really important. I, I think that's that's really true. And it, it, it speaks to, you know, you're talking about this very specific incidence that's that came out of a pandemic, but it does feel like it has really universal implications for what our social network is and, and how people interact. And uh, so Yermiyahu, thinking about your poem, it it starts out with the narrator kind of questioning some of the decisions they've made about this encounter leading up to this this moment. And then of course, in the second half, they are they, they feel so completely powerless. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that. I was also sort of thinking about how you talked about waiting for so many years to write something like this. And, and it's sort of interesting to think about that decision to, to write as, um, as a way of kind of reclaiming power in a way over a situation. Oh my goodness, Kara, you've already answered the part of the question. No, absolutely. We can, we can cut that out. No, if you no. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's absolutely, absolutely right on target. I think, um, the act of writing, the act of sitting and, you know, being with um, the words, which themselves are continuation of emotional and experiential excavation is powerful, literally, is is about claiming power, as you say, is about um, anchoring yourself in power, however small or however large, however seemingly small, but potentially monumental. Um, So even the question of small versus monumental um, is itself shifting and moving and one's relationship to that power is shifting. You know, there's some days that I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, why did I do this? Like, what was the, you know, like, why did I do this? You know, um, I mean, it's those voices are, you know, ever present, you know, why did I do this? Why did I write this? It's really not needed you know, even just getting ready for this reading is, it was really hard to prepare. It's like, what am I going to say about this? I've never read this poem anywhere. So yeah, this is the first time I've read it um, to any kind of public forum and it's, it's going out there. So, I mean, I mean, I even had to think at every step of the way there was questioning, like, do I want to write this? Do I want to send it? Like, do I want to send this to this anthology? Is this appropriate? And there's also a Yiddish version, um, which is, you know, published elsewhere, of course. And that too is a kind of power to kind of claim um, this kind of um, writerly stakes to, you know, make these writerly, to stake one's ground in this writerly terrain in in Yiddish is itself um, kind of another kind of power Um, So there's, yeah, at every step, there's the claiming the power to write, claiming the power to investigate, claiming the power to not bury, to, um, you know, to look deeply, claiming the power to articulate, claiming the power to frame, claiming the power to take a step back, taking the power to plunge in, um, hoping it's not an abyss, hoping that there's something there that will be other than an abyss, um, or if it is, you know, hoping the tools will be there to navigate the abyss. So at every step, those kinds of questions are investigated and proposed and um, opened up and put forth. 
I'm, I'm really glad you, you did decide to read it for us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, so powerful. I'm really interested in this idea of self-doubt in the piece, of course, as, as we heard and, and talked about, but also the doubt of, of writing. And that sort of leads me to our next question. We spoke with editor Caroline Bach earlier about this is what America's look like looks like and how that is, even though it's just writers from the DMV, how it's representative of the nation. And so I think perhaps that doubt, that sense of doubt and reclaiming power is perhaps how your, how you, your speaker kind of fits or breaks this mold. Um, Yirmiyahu, can you talk a little bit about how your, your speakers might be representative for the nation, how this fits into the, this is what America looks like title? Um, wow, that's a that's a big question. Yeah, I mean, even I think there, you know, the movement from the subtitle. Actually, it seems like there's two subtitles to this book. I don't know if Caroline talked about that. You know, the Washington Writers Publishing House anthology, and then Poetry and Fiction from D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. From that to America, so there is um, definitely a leap. I mean, there's a lot of local localisms and local references um, to the DMV in this book. But there's also, you know, the big Americaness of it. I do think the, I mean, the speaker is obviously talking about a very specific event, but um, I do think that moving into, moving into speaking, moving into words, moving into openness or, or opening about um, difficult subjects is part of our contemporary moment in so many different ways, in more ways than I can even begin to touch on, whether it's, you know, the reckoning of in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and um, the Me Too movement. There's a lot happening that is about resistance, that is about claiming space, that is about um, asking tough questions about um, the America that is now, the America that is that was, the connections between them. So I definitely think, actually, I mean, I think both of our pieces, um, you know, M's and my own definitely fit into that larger literary conversation and cultural slash political social conversation as well. Absolutely. And M, that leads us to you and, and that line that we commented on earlier about, you know, you were, we're more like your speaker than we'd like to admit. How does your, how does your speaker make or break this mold? I, I think we're living in a time and probably a time that's not particularly historically unique, but certainly unique in my lifetime where we do have to, you know, redefine what we value as a country, as a collective, uh, the political climate of the last four years, I think, is is felt everywhere, but particularly in D.C. And, you know, this anthology of D.C. writers, all of us sort of here uh, experiencing the energy of, you know, for ba- for better or worse, of everything that's been going on. And I, I think I think the speaker in my piece is sort of everyone on the, their worst day. You know, do you have, you know, is today the day that you make a decision callously that impacts someone 
you know, in a, in a profound way. I think we all have, you know, the potential to make terrible decisions. And that sounds very pessimistic, I guess, but I, I think it, there's also an optimism in it because the speaker is self-aware enough to sort of have an idea of what they're doing. And perhaps if, you know, we're always, you know, if we're willing to be aware of the decisions we make, the behaviors that we exhibit and the values that we, you know, the values that we, I guess, want to live by, that also gives us the opportunity to make different decisions. And I think Caroline Bach, actually, in an interview I read, talks about how this anthology in many ways explores an America that has changed. And I, I think that's what I love about all the pieces in this anthology is there's potential for change, even in the worst stories, you know, a, a story like mine about a very difficult time the, um, in, our, in our lives, there is potential for change. You, this, this protagonist does not have to make that decision again, if you had hindsight. Just something just occurred to me that like when you, sh- when one shines a light um, on something that went wrong, I'm not even going to say wrongdoing, although we can use that word. It allows you to step back. It lifts some of the burden. And I do think mm. um, that's very powerful in M's piece. So I did want to shift gears and ask you both a bit about your writing process um, and in particular about how you approach drafting and revising a piece like this before you submit it, but then as, uh, but then also during the editorial process as it's getting ready to be published? So I think my writing has varied. The, my writing process has varied over the years. I mean, there were times when for some of my earlier books where I would just sit in front of the computer until a poem came out. Like I just, I would say I'm not getting up. <laughs> like until, and then there are other times when I've gone away to do writing and given myself like a few weeks in another setting and then having left that that away place would come back and then revise and revise during the pandemic i've been working more on translation but i have been mulling and gestating and thinking about a new poetry book and then for fiction i just find that it really helps to just really get a large chunk of time away to just crank out you know, the prose, whereas poetry, I'm more able to do it, a poem here, a poem there. And and what about you? What was your, your writing and revision process like with this piece? So usually, um, I tend to revise forever. I just wander aimlessly um, and continuously just change things. This piece, for some reason, the first line actually originally was I spit in her face and then she died which was a little too aggressive to stay in the piece but that's the line that I woke up with probably because of COVID anxiety and everything else and I woke up with it and I was just a feeling and I sat down and sort of this piece emerged uh, pretty close to what it is with the exception of (laughs) the uh, coughed uh, replacing spit Um, which was actually the editors of this anthology's idea. They changed that line, uh, which I am very grateful for. More people seem to gravitate towards it with that change, such a small change. But yeah, usually it's it's a labor 
but this piece actually was not a lot of labor. So that gift when those pieces come. <laughs> well, I also like, I mean, Very I, like, rare. I like cough because it's, it's kind of like you're sickly yourself where spit is such an act of, it's more of a clear act of aggression slash violence, whereas cough has some ambiguity in it. And it's also sick, you know, there's a sickliness in it. So it's potentially slightly more sympathetic to the speaker. Oh, yeah. It was such a great change. Thanks, Jonah Colson and Caroline Bach. <laughs> I also think it's one of those details that makes us uncomfortable with the fact that that might be something that we would do. That might be a choice we would do. I mean, what position would you need to be in to spit in someone's face? It's a very different position than a cough. So it just opens up all of these questions. And yeah, that, that kind of real uncomfortableness with our reality and who we are. And, and like you said, you know, if this is the story of everyone on their worst day, what are you capable of your worst on your worst day? Um, yeah. On that very light note, <laughs> I'd love to kind of wrap up with a final question about writing different genres. Um, Em, I want to start with you. You write Flash, of course, and you said this came all out in one burst. You also write novels. How are you adapting between those lengths, those genres? How do you find your voice between them? You know, I I don't have a great answer to this question. I I am incredibly feeling-based. If there's an idea, I try to write about it, and sometimes it feels, you know, long form, and sometimes it, it can't be too long. It's sort of a burst. I love the idea of short pieces. Flash fiction has emerged, I think, in the last couple of years, you know, more and more. And it's such a powerful medium because you get sort of that slice, that window into a life. And I think that's really powerful. I think narratives, you know, really, really great narratives um, have the power to help us look at ourselves and understand ourselves in the world better. And flash fiction gives more people the opportunity to do that because you will sit down waiting for the bus or waiting at the doctor's office and read a flash fiction piece. So I hope to write more flash fiction pieces, um, but they don't come naturally to me. So that we'll see what happens with that. But um, yeah, they're certainly faster, right? Than a novel. <laughs> certainly easier to keep it all in your head at once. Yeah. And Yumiyahu, not only are you writing in English and in Yiddish, but you're translating, you're writing poetry, you're writing fiction. That's a lot to juggle. How do you manage and adapt for each? So, I mean, I, as M was suggesting, I, mean, I kind of listen, I kind of listen to what's coming, you know, to the feeling, the words, the ideas that I want to explore and see where they take me um, and not get to not get too wrapped up in what is actually going to look like on the page until later. So, you know, and also like my poetry and my prose, I mean, my poetry can be prosy and my prose can be poetic. So I kind of feel like my writing comes out of um, those spaces between, between each. And I, I do like actually blending and playing with, with both those things. Um, so that, you know, ultimately it's not even always clear what, what these things are. So for example, um, for my book, The Education of a Daffodil, 
um, the subtitles, prose poems. I mean, those are really, I mean, you could just see they're long and blocky and, you know, yeah, they have spaces between the stanzas, but they are very, pro they're prosy. But I also like to make sure there is a music and a rhythm um, to them. I think with the two books of fiction, I really did have to plan. Like I really did have to like, cause it just required a kind of spatial mapping. Um, and I had to keep all those things in mind um, as I was writing and planning. And then in terms of translations, I, I mean, that's like a whole other conversation, but I have tried to devote a lot of time to reading Yiddish literature, um, just because I feel like Yiddish just, just needs readers. And so, I mean, obviously English does too, but, you know, I just really want to devote devote time to Yiddish literature and spend time with it and, you know, move in its music. And the projects that I decide to translate are writers whose voices I just, you know, I can't get out of my head. And I just feel like people need to read this. And there are also voices that I feel I can render in um, an appropriate English that would be, you know, an English that would be suitable for the text at hand because translators are, they're advocates for writers and it's a long, 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 long slog um, to go from, you know, translating something to getting it, you know, polished and ready for publication. So those are just some of the things I keep in mind as I think about projects and what's pulling me and what I want to be with, because, right, I mean, that's really what it's about is what do we feel is urgent and needs to be out there at a given moment? Well, and we've been talking about what was urgent about this particular anthology too, and and talked a little bit with Carolyn about why this was the moment it came out. So I think that's a, a really great place to uh, to wrap up. Uh, so thank you both so much for for being here with us tonight. Oh, thank you for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the readings and the conversation. Thank you so much. The Fawfit Book Podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on. <laughs>